Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmer's Day, April 27th, 2020. On the show today, Universal asks, what will it take for you to feel safe returning to the parks? And in our main segment, Jim tells us the history of Norway's restaurant Akershus Princess Character Meal. Let's get started by bringing in the man who says that now is the perfect time to fake your own disappearance. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? At this point, I look in the mirror and it's what I see is a, a sheepdog that needs to be oh, sheared. And this is hard to say when you're a guy who only has five hairs, but... <laughs> I'm actually uh, looking to buy some hair product online that will complete my turn into Bride of Frankenstein. Ah, well, okay. That Perhaps you and I can start a second career working at Halloween Horror Night. <laughs> so, I, was doing a, uh, I was doing a video chat yesterday with uh, with Mike Newell mm-hmm. from Mass World Radio. And we, so we get on and he sees me and like in the first five seconds of the call, he's like, dude, you need a haircut. It's <laughs> <laughs> like... Yeah, yeah, I'm a very gray sheepdog. So, you know, that, that's, so. <laughs> it's the Pride of Frankenstein thing. She had that streak of gray going. She through. did. She did. So, yeah, there you go. Mm-hmm. All right, Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, Karen J, Travis M, and G.E. Stevens, and longtime subscribers, Ginny the Goofy Bomb, her words, not mine, uh, our own Philip from the UK, and Clayton S. Jim, these listeners are the union assigned understudies. It's Carousel of Progress. When an animatronic character is out for maintenance, these folks step into the role. The training video for this job consists entirely of the pop and lock sequences for the 1984 movie Break Into Electric Boogaloo. And it works, Jim. It works. True story. So I have to ask, are there any method actors among the cast? Because remember, you know, we did have the father lose his hand the other day. <laughs> and it's that's, like, right. that's a little too dedicated for me. I'm, I'm, I'm just saying. My all-time favorite malfunction in Carousel of Progress is mm-hmm. in the 1940 scene. Uh, so this was over New Year's. The 1940 scene, you know, the dad would occasionally tap his foot mm-hmm. during the scene. The foot would actually tap really, really hard, like mm-hmm. smack down on the ground. And it was it was loud enough that it would it would make a, a loud noise during the show. So we were all trying to time it and mm-hmm. clap as it was happening. Also, that scene repeated a few times. We got stuck in the same scene. Oh. So we had uh, ample opportunity to see the malfunction. <laughs> Dad's got rhythm. <laughs> the problem was we couldn't figure it out. So it was sure. like, you know, he'd talk for like 30 seconds and then it would it would bounce once, you know, off the floor. Like, oh, okay. Anyway. You don't suppose that was actually some poor maintenance worker trapped under the carousel of progress. <laughs> you know, sending, sending out to, yeah, desperate Morse code. Please let there be somebody in the audience. You know, that's all I can reach is this shoe, damn it. So That's funny. Mm. All right, Jim, let's do the, uh, the Disney dish news. Jim, the big news uh, over the last week is that Universal Orlando has sent out a survey asking folks how comfortable that they will be or what it'll take for them to be comfortable returning to the park. So let's go over the questions, mm-hmm. shall we, Jim? Sure. So this was sent, sent out on February 18th, and uh, it starts with, a, uh, with this question. Once state governments permit it, Universal Orlando will reopen. How likely are you to consider visiting the park if it reopens following its pre-coronavirus standard opening and safety procedures? Very likely. Likely, undecided, unlikely, very unlikely. So that's the first question. Second question has the same type of responses, and it starts with this premise. Mm -hmm. Below, you will find various measures that could help protect the health and safety of our guests and team members. 
We'd like you to evaluate each of these measures by telling us how you'd feel if it was implemented by Universal theme parks. How would you feel if Universal, number one, requires all guests to have their temperatures taken? Those with fevers would have their temperatures checked with a handheld thermometer. Those testing consistently high would be refused admission. So how would you feel about that, Jim? Shanghai Disneyland has had this in place now for a while. I mean, mind Mm -hmm. you, that's just to keep Disney Town open, the restaurants and the shops there. But they funnel you into a tent so they can get a, you know, and I think you've mentioned previously the problem of trying to get temperature reads in Florida is it's it's like trying to let me take your temperature while standing on the sun. Yeah. A lot of background noise, as the (laughs) scientists say, right? There we go. All right. So the whole notion of setting up a structure to do this. I mean, remember, if you're coming in from the parking structure, you're in that rotunda just outside of CityWalk. And are they going to have the space to set this up? And if they don't, where is this new procedure going to be set up? It makes sense to do it in the parking complex. They could dedicate a section or two of Mm -hmm. the parking structure to that, right? Absolutely. All right, makes sense. Mm -hmm. By the way, I'd be be absolutely fine with that. Mm -hmm. Number two, requires all guests to undergo a rapid COVID test results in 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. Only those with a negative result would be allowed to enter. So this is the one I think that's tricky for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. we, We could sort of squint our eyes and say that your body temperature measurement is not a HIPAA-protected mm-hmm. piece of medical information, right? I, I, you, could, you could make that argument. Mm-hmm. Whether you have coronavirus is probably a falls under HIPAA mm-hmm. medical information in the United States. I'm not sure how they would possess this information, right? Once they know it and do something with it, I think mm-hmm. there's a whole set of laws that fall into place. I'm not saying it's not a good idea, right? I mm-hmm. think it's a, I think it's it's an absolutely absolutely a good idea. It would make me feel very comfortable, mm-hmm. right? I think some legislation would have to be passed by the states and the feds to allow this kind of thing. Anyone who's been paying attention to the news is testing here in the states has has been in the news repeatedly because, A, we don't seem to have a lot of the tests, and right. B, you know, a very small portion of the population has been tested. So it's this whole notion of, so Universal is going to get access somehow to this pile of rapid COVID tests that they're going to be able to have the exact number for the, the number of guests who are coming to the resort that day. Right now, that's kind of a fairy tale right up there with the three bears. But, you know, in three months, six months, you know, it might be an entirely different situation. But the other thing here, Len, frankly, that results in 15 minutes. So it's like you take the test and where exactly do you go to stand and wait to have your yeah. survey results announced. So, so, so they're doing the uh, maybe they're doing the screening on level one of the parking lot, and you wait in level two of the parking lot, or to where you can do regular security screening in level three of the parking of the parking garage. See, this is why I do a podcast with you. All right, always nice <laughs> to work with someone who's smarter yeah. than you. So good. Yes. Okay. So I don't, I don't know that there are any uh, tests that can get results in fifteen minutes right now. A friend of mine took a test mm-hmm. on Monday and mm-hmm. said the results would be back inside four days. That's a that's a long time to wait, but maybe maybe that's possible. The other thing is, to, maybe to your if there's point, a lot of stuff to do on level three of the parking lot. <laughs> you know, those four exactly. days will fly by. So. The uh, you bring up a good point though that mm. just for normal day to day operations, 
the universal will need hundreds of thousands mm-hmm. of these rapid tests. I mean, yep. they're going to need to test their team members as well, that's, right? I'm so glad you brought that up because, yeah, that's, <laughs> that is an issue here as well. Yeah. This thing, I think we, we all agree, in theory, is a, is a great idea. There are some practical considerations that would need to happen that probably aren't going to be resolved in the next you know, couple of weeks. Hmm. All right. The next one I think we can all get behind strongly encourages all guests to wear face masks. I would say strongly encourage here to me means armed guards enforcing it. Mm. Why would you not require it? There are two questions here. The, the question that actually follows the strongly encourages is a requires all guests ah, right, right. to yeah. wear masks. You know, the whole notion of, okay, in one, one scenario, it's, it's optional. You know, and the other, it's yeah. like, look, you don't get in here unless you're wearing a mask. Then that gets interesting because how do you enforce that in the park, especially think about it, you know, you're bringing little kids in and anybody who's ever had a child in a daycare center, it's like, you know, it's a Petri dish with feet that comes home and it's like, hi, we we did clay today and I got bubonic plague. <laughs> I, I have heard from parents that they said that uh, if, if masks are required, there's no way that their kids would keep them on. Right. And that that might be something where they self-select out of going to the parks. Like if, if Disney or Universal says, look, you're going to be required mm-hmm. to wear a face mask and you're going to be required to wear gloves. I'm, I'm all for gloves as well. Um, I think that might cause some folks to self-select out of going. That might be acceptable, right? Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. Okay. Uh, the next question is, uh, how would you feel if Universal suspends x-ray conveyor belts at security? Uh, you know... So the, I guess the, the point would be you, you want, don't want your stuff touching other stuff mm-hmm. on the conveyor belts? Initially, I was confused by this survey question, but, but Dustin Fuse, who I, I do the Universal Joint podcast, pointed out that this is really the theme park equivalent of when you go to the grocery store now and, you know, there's this oh, a, yeah, the, that elaborate... your own bags. Well, uh, that'll also that elaborate bit of theater where it's the customer in front of you leaves and then the cashier wipes down the, the automatic belt that rolls your groceries down and the scan point and the place where you put down your groceries. So mm-hmm. the whole notion here is that by eliminating this X-ray belt thing, you don't have to have the poor security people, in addition to checking the bags, constantly having right. to wipe down the belt for every guest that puts, you know, something through. I get it from that point of view. I, I genuinely do. You know, you have to sort of pick your battles, especially in this situation. Universal's had the x-ray, I want to say, for at least five to ten years now. It is something I think we've all become used to since 9-11. Sure. So. I mean, so Disney doesn't use x-rays for bags that you bring into the park. It's a, it's a check. Yep. Right? Mm-hmm. I think we still need to do the checks because Florida's going to Florida. Yeah. People are, you know, just as likely to bring in a live Python in their bag. <laughs> it's Florida. It's Florida, Jim. I, it's I, I, Florida. I'm sorry. You have to, you have to make a t-shirt of that. I'm sorry. Florida is going to Florida. I, yeah, I Florida's love that. Florida, right. So we need to, we I think we still need to do the bag checks, but mm-hmm. maybe not the x-rays. Fair enough. Okay. okay. So the next set of questions are around um, in-park experience. Mm-hmm. So how would you feel if Universal closed indoor attractions and shows? I would probably say that I would be either unlikely or undecided on this one. And the reason is, is I think you can space the seating out for these things to where some of them are open 
regularly. Like you do every, you know, every other row and then three seats between, or maybe, you know, every third row. And then you do like three seats between families. Deeper down in this very same survey that, that universal floats oh, there the we idea. Go. Yeah, I see yeah, the, the yeah. effect of seats guests having every other row and every other seat for rides and shows. So the, the notion- I, I would even space them out farther than that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, the next one is uh, suspense parade and nighttime show gatherings. Mm. I think we're all, we're all good with that. Universal does, in fact, have practice at this uh, because the Universal Singapore Resort, uh, Resort, which, by the way, finally closed, I want to say, two weeks ago after. I mean, it it, it was the last thing open in Asia. <laughs> Noodle shops and that's it. But they were the ones who first were doing the temperature checks along with Shanghai Disney. But, you know, they flat out said that one of the ways they were enforcing social, social distancing was by eliminating those artificial moments where people naturally crowded together to watch their nighttime lagoon show and their daily parade. So they at least have the data from Singapore to call upon to go, okay, we know that works. All right, let's put that in place. Yeah, that's fine. I mean, they can still play the music as you're going around the park. Mm -hmm. I'm fine with that. We just don't need to uh, stand together and watch it. All right. The next one is, how would you feel if Universal implements social distancing practices through the park, e.g., Six-foot distancing when queuing for lines, spaces between tables and restaurants, and mobile food ordering. I think we're all in agreement that that's a necessity. Yeah, no, I agree. Yep. Next one's kind of interesting. How would you feel if Universal implements a virtual line waiting system for all or most attractions? And again, I think it was Dustin that pointed this out, that they already have a system like this in place for the Escape from New York with Jimmy Fallon or ride, you know, race through New York for with Jimmy race Fallon. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be relatively easy to implement that technology and spread it out to each of the individual shows and attractions around the park. Yep. I think that's a great idea. The implementation of it would be the, the tricky thing. Like, could you be in multiple lines at once? Mm-hmm. I guess you can't because you can't be in real lines at once. But could you, could you be in a, let's say they did a virtual line waiting system for most attractions. Could you be in a regular line and a virtual line at the same time? Mm-hmm. I suppose that's what FastPass is, right? I guess so. Sort of, yeah. Hmm. All right, fair enough. I'm down with that one. I think it depends on the implementation. All right, uh, next one, uh, remove all 3D glasses from rides. I think then what we're saying is we're going to close the 3D rides too. Not necessarily. Oh, really? I defer to our, our good friend, Seth Kaberski, who I remember him talking about how Harry Potter and the Forbidden Journey, that attraction initially opened without 3D, and then oh. it pivoted to a 3D version where the idea was that as you got on your flying bench, you were given, I want to say, Quidditch goggles. And then okay. the decision was made, you know, after a year or so of operation of that, eh, this is kind of a pain in the ass. So it's like they reverted back to the old version. But I remember Seth, when he was doing stuff for the Orlando Weekly, reporting on that. Mm-hmm. So it's not really all that much of a hardship to swap out the media that you're using from where you need 3D goggles versus you don't need 3D goggles. So All right. Well, that makes sense then. Yeah. Yep. Well, good. That's fine. Let's mm-hmm. do that. Uh, next one we've already mentioned, uh, seat guests in every other row, in every other seat for rides at shows. I think actually there'll be even more distance than that. Mm-hmm. But I think, again, we're all down with that. That's fine. The next one, require team members to wipe down vehicles or seats between rides. I think I'm in favor of this. I wonder how much it would slow down the ride. Back in the early 1990s, when the Imagineers 
were building Splash Mountain for Tokyo Disneyland. Their research showed them that the Japanese weren't necessarily upset about riding in a flume rhyme and getting splashed when they hit kind of the bottom of Chickapen Hill or, or that sort of thing. What upset them was stepping into a log and sitting down and getting wet that away, as in there was still water. Oh, okay. And what they wound up doing is they actually created between the offload and the load area a stop where Tokyo Disney cast members could step in and quickly wipe down the interior of the log so you would not get wet as you sat down. But the problem is, again, that was designed into the building. I mean, if you think about something, for example, like Rip Ride Rocket, where does that attraction actually ever stop? Right. Yeah. I mean, People step out, it moves up the track, people get in and it takes off again. And it's like, you would now literally have to stop that thing, wipe it down before guests could then climb in. And geez, I don't know, Lynn. Well, I think operationally that would be a challenge. So imagine something like Peter Pan's Flight Mm -hmm. or Splash Mountain, where in Splash Mountain, the load unload area is the same. Mm -hmm. So you you have guests getting off of the logs Mm -hmm. in Splash Mountain. So you'd have to have cast members hop into the log, spray it down, yeah. wipe it down, mm-hmm. and then get back out. We all know that that's going to reduce the capacity of the ride. And with the social distancing, you're going to have to reduce the capacity of the rides anyway. I wonder how much that would affect it. I think it's a great idea. I think, again, from a practical perspective, how much time would it take? And then number two, mm-hmm. if you're using a cleaning product on that, this and, and this, is a, uh, this is kind of a secondary concern, but how much cleaning product residue will be on those seats and then get on your clothes. Like, are you using bleach? Are we all going to end up with bleach stains on our clothes? I don't know how that would work. Let me tell you a story back in the 1980s when it was the height of people being concerned about HIV. And evidently there was, was a manager at Disneyland Park who decided we really need to be proactive about this. So they got the strongest possible spray material. And every night when they were shutting down the Emporium, cast members would go through and wipe down everything. But the problem is this stuff, Len, was operating room strengths. And what ended up happening is that cast members suddenly noticed that their skin on their hands was cracking, their nails were coming up, you know, that sort of thing. And it was one of these things where they had to really make a stink with management to the effect of, I realize you're making this safe for the guests, but you're really hurting us. And, you know, they had to really push back hard before Disney sought out a brand new cleaning product that wasn't that that still did the job, but wasn't so abrasive or had after effects for the poor cast members who were doing the swabbing down of the Emporium. And I think a number of them actually wound up suing Disney and in sort of the classic case, there was a settlement and then this went all went away. But I just tell that cautionary tale, if you're going to do this, find a product that does the job, but is also friendly for the employee that's going to be wiping down hundreds of vehicles an hour. Sure. And I I think the the cast members will be wearing heavy duty gloves and masks too. I think. I hope so. For me, I'm I'm envisioning like a Formula One race car pit stop (laughs) where, no, no, no. I mean, like you you hop out of the ride. People hop in the seats, they do their thing in like three seconds, and then they hop back out. Yeah. In the best of all possible worlds, that's what's going to happen. I I just... Can you imagine the workout that you would get getting in and out of a Splash Mountain ride vehicle like two or three times a minute over the course of eight hours? 
Okay. Your legs and butt would be so toned. <laughs> oh my god! I may volunteer to do this for the summer. <laughs> Hold on, let me let me click on job opportunities in Orlando. <laughs> All right, let's go to the next one. It was uh, enhanced sanitation, e.g. hand sanitizer stations everywhere, sanitation wipes for all guest contact areas. I think this is a, a, a no-brainer. In fact, I would go so far as to say guests should wear not only gloves, mm -hmm. but let's say that, uh, that Disney or Universal hands out multiple sets of colored gloves. Like in the morning, everyone wears blue gloves, and then mm -hmm. at noon, we all switch to orange, and then at 4 o'clock, we all switch to green. This way, we're not carrying around the same pair of gloves all day. We all know that we've switched them and it limits the uh, the opportunity for spreading disease. I feel so bad for whoever it is who just did the redesign of the entrance area for Disney Hollywood Studios. I mean, you know how it, it's set up now with, you know, the multiple bag checks and yep. easy access to security points. And it, they've done the perfect job for getting that park ready for when Galaxy's Edge and Toy Story Land opened. They literally finished that in February. And now this happens. And now they have to go back and it's like, okay, so where are the hand sanitizer stations? And where do we yep. hand out the gloves? And it's just sort of like, oh, <laughs> we're never done. Well, you, you, mentioned, uh, you mentioned the work on Universal mm -hmm. Studios, but they were actively working on a similar setup at Magic Kingdom. Mm, this is true. We've all been walking through the redo of Epcot's entrance plaza right. and, and kind of hope that given that some of these things were caught right in the middle, that they can adjust that much more quickly to including a hand sanitizer station and a place where they hand out gloves and the like. But I think we're all, we're all down with the enhanced sanitation measures. Mm -hmm. All right. The next question implements touch-free payment for food, merchandise, and parking. I think we are all in line with that. Sure. Yeah. So that would be credit cards? No cash, I guess is what we're saying there. How many folks get it these days just sort of, you know, wave their iPhone and there we go. Right. No, exactly. we're there. You know, that that one makes sense. And then uh, eliminate self-serve food options, mm -hmm. e.g. team members would refill beverages. I, I think we're all behind this as well. I don't know. Maybe maybe Derek Bergen decides that uh, <laughs> he really wants to do his Coke freestyle <laughs> button pushing. Yeah, I can see Derek saying that too. Yeah, maybe maybe so. Uh, Len, we already live in this world. I mean, remember when we, we could all do our own self-serve of the Dole Whip at Captain right. Cook's? And, and they took that away. So I think if we've recovered from that moment in Disney theme park enthusiast history. We can deal with this. I think so. That would be a challenge at the food courts in the various resorts, which Ooh, have yeah. self-serve beverages. But again, they can just turn them off, right? Yep. Okay. The last set of questions are around how uh, Universal might adjust park capacity. Mm -hmm. So the first one is, what if we limited attendance to 25% of park capacity? I think that's the... So in, in, I don't know what the what, off the top of my head what the Universal park capacity is, but let's say Magic Kingdom, park capacity is 90K, mm -hmm. but that's super crowded. I mean, if they limited it to to 25% of that, which would be 22,500 people, mm -hmm. that's barely more than a Halloween or a Christmas party event. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's fine. Okay. If we double back on some of the stuff we just talked about, the seating people in every other row or several seats apart, or... Mm -hmm. placing a new procedure in place where vehicles have to be scrubbed down before they can be dispatched again. Right. It sort of makes up for so the, the low park attendance makes up for the reduced attraction capacity. That's it, exactly. Yeah, I think that's a good point, yeah. The next option is limits attendance to 50% of park capacity. And again, I, I think we could, we could see our way through to that. Mm -hmm. The next option is uh, limits attendance to 75%. 
of park capacity. I'm not sure that more than 50%, mm-hmm. I think any number over 50% doesn't really count as, quote, limiting attendance. No, this is probably the bridge too far. Well, first of all, I don't think they average mm-hmm. 75% of park capacity on a given day, do they? Mm-hmm. Oh, but I guess you're looking for like Christmas. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, okay, okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, next question is, how do you feel about requiring all team members to wear face masks? I am for that. Mm-hmm. Requiring all team members to have their temperatures taken. Those with fevers would have their temperatures checked again with a handheld thermometer. Those testing consistently high would not be permitted to work until testing fever-free for at least 24 hours. Again, completely Mm -hmm. in line with that. And we've talked about the challenges with that. And then finally, the last one, require all team members to undergo a daily rapid COVID test. Mm -hmm. Uh, Only those with negative results would be permitted to work. I think that's, it's difficult to do it for the general public, I think, as an employer, Mm -hmm. just as you you can require them to do random drug tests. You yeah. can require them to do a COVID test. Yeah, I think that's that's a different thing, right? No, absolutely. And again, in a weird sort of way, this would be far easier to do with team members than it would be for guests arriving at the resort. But we still are not in this space where these sorts of tests exist in the number that right. one would need for this in a daily basis. So, right. Yeah, we're not quite uh, we're not quite there yet. But I think those are all those are all great ideas. Yep. Yep. And they they didn't ask this question, but I want to get your your opinion of it, Jim. Mm-hmm. Two questions I'm going to ask. One, uh, for Disney, mm-hmm. what if they uh, they only opened half the hotels? Would you be okay with that? So let's say, for example, you know, I mean, D- Disney's taking reservations for June 1st. Mm-hmm. Let's say that on June 1st they say, okay, look, we're going to open up the resorts, but only half of them. Would you be okay with that? As I recall this week, you got reached out to by Gary V, like I did. And, you know, Gary's a diabetic. Uh, he has reservations right. for July. And he was just questioning whether or not a, it's safe. And to be honest, when I wrote back to him, it's like, given what Governor DeSantis has been talking about, you know, it's entirely possible that the Florida parks will be open. But it will it in fact be, if you take your family down there, Will it in fact be a Disney World vacation? I mean, if you take the, the this is what I'm this is what I'm hearing from a lot of people. Yeah, it's you yeah. know, like if I'm required to wear a mask and I'm required to wear a glove, gloves, and there are no character greetings, and there's no parades or fireworks, yeah. and you know the ride capacity is reduced, and certain rides are going to be closed, mm-hmm. and the food courts are going to be closed, and we we can't get our own food, you know, and this and that and. Is it is it really worth you know the the four thousand dollars I'm going to spend on vacation, or should I just stay home? Yeah, I think that's the challenge in interpreting these surveys is that we could answer that we strongly agree or mm-hmm. we're strongly comfortable with any one of these questions, but are we comfortable with all of them in aggregate? I still am. I like I would. I, I think I've said this before. As soon as it's is reasonably safe to go to the parks, mm-hmm. I'm going to go to the parks. One of the reasons you're going to go to the parks, Len, is it it's kind of your job, and <laughs> it, it is, it is. you would then have a baseline going forward. Yeah. It's like, well, yeah, compared to what happened during COVID nineteen, you know, right, I, you exactly, know, things are going we, great. We that, yeah. But I think, but I think, you know, for for people who aren't crazy like me, mm-hmm. I think that would be a reasonable question for them to ask. Okay. Oh, you know, absolutely. Yeah. In the context of this, mm-hmm. is it, is it still, you know, quote a vacation or do I just hold off until things are more like they used to be? That's a fair question. This week, Georgia is supposed to first reopen holding alleys and hairdressers and nail salons and that sort of thing. And then the following Monday, it's theaters and restaurants and that sort of thing. And, and what's been fascinating for me, Len, is to see the pushback from like restaurant owners who were talking about, well, look, we could reopen our restaurant, 
But what if people don't come back? As it is right now, my employees are on, on unemployment. These are people who work for tips. They have a solid income stream as long as I'm closed. If we reopen and they come into work and then nobody shows up, nobody gets tips. Right. And they can't claim unemployment at that point. That's it, exactly. So this whole notion of, you know, in fact, DeSantis has been talking about, you know, well, should we create a, a special on-ramp, so to speak, for you know, all of the Disney employees who've been furloughed for unemployment and that sort of thing. And, and they did, actually. They, they automatically signed them up for unemployment insurance. There we go. All right. But it's it's one of these situations where if you're somebody who, who works at a Disney restaurant and the guys who you know worked for years and finally got that that amazing gig at Victoria and Alberts, but you know if you go to back to work and nobody's there, yeah, then then you're worse off. That's it exactly. And I think that's one of the things that these that these surveys are trying to gauge. Like if we reopened, mm-hmm. right, what percentage of guests say that they would be comfortable with these measures? And if you know if that number is is ninety percent, right, then that's that tells these parks that it may be worthwhile to reopen. But if if the percentage of people who say that they're strongly uncomfortable, mm-hmm. even in the face of all of these measures, right? Mm-hmm. If that number is like you know, 90%, right? If people are just going to wait until there's a vaccine and herd immunity, then there's no point in reopening, right? Because you're not going to make enough money to, to reopen. Mm, did you, do you see that piece in the Times on Sunday about the new normal? And there was actually language in the story about, again, you, you talk about the vaccine and that sort of thing. And Mm-hmm. In this article, they were talking about how, yes, there's all this talk of, in 18 months, we should have a vaccine, but that could be optimistic, it could be naive. I mean, it's one of these situations right. where back in the 60s, it took four years to develop a mumps vaccine, which they then started using in 67. On the other hand, Len, there's been a very well-funded, very highly focused effort for 30 years now to try to find mm-hmm. a, a vaccine for HIV, and we still don't have it. We have a treatment plan. But we don't have a vaccine. And that's there's a number of people right now who are like, we should maybe not so focus so much on a vaccine as we should a treatment plan, especially with all of this talk of a second wave of COVID, possibly this fall, along with standard flu season. I mean, to to your point, we haven't cured HIV, but we have made it to where it's for a lot of people. It's just a long term chronic condition. That's it. Exactly. But again, think about how long it took just for us to get to that till they developed the cocktail. But still, I mean, so I I think this is a it's a a very interesting interesting survey. Um, You know, one more question I wanted to ask is this: We talked about you know Disney opening up Mm -hmm. half their hotels, uh, and whether you'd be okay with that. What if they only opened half the parks? Because one of the one of the concerns that they're they're going to have too is is around staffing, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Number one, they sent all the college program kids home. The mm-hmm. new wave of college program kids hasn't arrived. Mm-hmm. I'm not even sure that they will. Yeah. They sent home all the international cast members or, or most of the international cast members. There's a, there's a decent chance that there, there simply aren't enough people mm-hmm. to, uh, to step the parks. What if, they, uh, what if you could choose between two parks a day instead of four? Remember, there was a deliberate choice made back in the 90s because of healthcare costs and the like that Disney World had this huge pool of dedicated full-time employees who'd work there forever. And what they then decided to do was take a a number of the full-time positions and make them part-time because, again, you didn't necessarily have to give the very best health care to 
part-time employees and the like. And But, you know, the problem is that a full-time employee who's been there for years is that much more dedicated, that much more knowledgeable, that yep. has probably worked a number of different attractions. So, you know, if you're in a position like this and it's like, okay, we need somebody to go over and work Dumbo, it's like, oh, yeah, well, I did Dumbo five years ago. I can do this. Where if you've got part-time employees who only know the one attraction they work on and you don't open their park. Yeah, then what? To your original point, from an operational point of view, this is going to be a you've got to walk before you can run situation. And I would honestly not be surprised if we only see one or two parks open. Yeah, I've heard there's consideration to open one park per day. I think one park per day would not be, mm-hmm. wouldn't do it for a lot of people. Yeah. Number one, I don't know how you could open only one park half the resorts, Mm -hmm. and then reduce capacity going into the park as well. From a logistics and a financial perspective, I don't know that that makes sense. I think the minimum there would have to be two. If we're talking about the Disneyland Resort, or for that matter, the Universal Orlando Resort, two very different animals. I mean, you have parks that are effectively side by side, you know, share back of house and all that. So those two, in that situation, both parks would have to be open or would make sense. Whereas if we're talking about the Walt Disney World Resort and you know the physical distance, but at the same time, you'd still have to operate the Skyway. You'd still have to operate the monorail, still have to operate the buses, no matter what you do. And each of those then have their own COVID hose down cleanup procedures that would limit capacity or how many vehicles could be operating in at one, at one time. And it just, I honestly feel terrible for the folks at Disney who are sitting down trying to figure out how to make this work because it's just yeah it's very challenging very challenging all right Jim let's take a quick break when we come back from our uh, break you're going to tell us about the history of the princess character breakfast at Acre Shoes before we do that real quick uh, don't forget Turing Plans is hosting a virtual movie night every Friday night at 8 p.m. Eastern where the movie is related to a Disney or Universal theme park ride Log on to the chat feature at TuringPlans.com or on Twitter, use the hashtag LinerMovieNight and we'll make goofy comments together about the movie as it plays. So be sure to follow Turing Plans on Twitter to vote for each week's film. Folks, we'll be right back. All right, Jim, we're back. And you are going to tell us all about History of the Princess Meal at Akershus in Norway. By the way, I did this uh, I've done this in the last year, actually, just to sort of go back and, and revisit it. The food was better than I imagined, and the princess interaction was better than I imagined. But I don't, I'm not sure that it wasn't uh, always this way. Why don't you bring us up to speed on the history of it? It was May 6, 1988, that the Norway Pavilion soft opened for the very first time. A $30 million addition to the World Showcase, designed to look uh, like a Norwegian coastal village, Soft opened on May 6th, had its formal dedication on June 3rd. In fact, Norway's Crown Prince Harald V and Crown Prince Sonja, who, by the way, the both of them are now king and queen of Norway, were on hand Mm. for the ceremony. Uh, Maelstrom, on the other hand, uh, due to tech issues, that didn't get open till July 5th, 1988. Uh, Speaking of Maelstrom, or uh, as we we know it now, uh, Frozen Ever After, did you see that story the, the Sentinel uh, did earlier this week about that 27-year-old woman from Chicago who's suing Walt Disney World? 
I did. I did. Why don't you go over it real quick, though? This woman's name is Amanda Peterson. She was the wheelchair and has spina bifida. Mm-hmm. She reportedly checked with a Disney cast member before getting on whatever the ride vehicle on Frozen Ever After is called. But she checked mm-hmm. with a cast member back on January 12th. And according to what Gabriel Rousson over at the Sentinel reported, um, Ms. Peter was told mm-hmm. that Frozen Ever After just had small dips. I'm not sure I would necessarily agree with that, but okay, go ahead. What complicates this is Amanda had undergone brain surgery just six weeks prior to her trip to Orlando, and she had been told by her doctor that it's okay to go forward this vacation, but only if you do like slow-moving rides, like Small World. So again, that's supposedly why she checked with the cast member before getting on Frozen Ever After. And what Amanda experienced instead of Small Dose was, in her words, or this is how the incident is reported in the lawsuit she since filed, she experienced a violent backlash, which then left Ms. Peters with neck pain and mental fog and since caused her to have slurred speech. She's suing for $30,000 in damages compensation. This is rude to say this of somebody who uses a wheelchair, but I wonder if Ms. Peterson actually has a leg to stand on legally. Jim, 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 Jim. I'm sorry. Um, Straight to hell, Jim. Straight to hell. (laughs) Okay. Funny, but straight to hell. All right. As she's in the queue, she actually had to go past that sign, which reads, board a boat to Arendelle and set off in the world of frozen fun. This song-filled journey includes a backwards and forwards plunge down short waterfalls. Okay. The word plunge should should give you pause, Mm -hmm. right? But again, I wonder if they're actually going to be able to chase down the cast members he supposedly talked with for the the short dips and all that. But anyway, I I have to assume that that sign is, you know, at least when it comes to the resort's liability— I don't know. It'll just be interesting to see what happens when this finally makes it to court. Back to Epcot Snowy Pavilion now. So one of the first things you see, you come off World Showcase Promenade is, and again, Lent, I've been practicing it, this because I do it so badly, Restaurant Akershus. Is that, did I get that right? Akershus? Akershus. Sure. I don't know why I can't say that name. As you already know, restaurant Akershus is modeled after the real Akershus uh, castle in Oslo, though given this uh, commanding harborfront structure with its six earth and stone walls, it was built back in the 14th century to protect the royal residence. Maybe it's time we started calling it what the Norwegian people actually call it, which is the Akershus Fortress. It is indeed a fortress. I've actually been to it. Have you really? In real life. Okay. I really do. It's, a, it's, it's right in the center of Oslo mm-hmm. waterfront. You can't, it literally cannot miss it. I mean, it was, um, so if you're, a, if you're on a Disney cruise, by the way, uh, it's directly to the right of where the, uh, the Disney magic docks. Yeah. Okay. Because I was looking at, at photos of it and couldn't decide, is it four stories tall, five stories tall? How, how big is it's, it? It's just, uh, just massive. I mean, there's there's several stories. So the tour goes up and down the stairs and there's a lot of like, uh, you know, ramp walking and things like that too. Okay, got it. All right. Anyway, when Restaurant Ekashu's, uh first opened to the public in June of 88, it featured a cold board or buffet, both with hot dishes and cold dishes. So mm-hmm. uh, traditional Norwegian fare like youth cut cake, which is Traditional uh, all-beef meatballs that are flavorful, if somewhat salty. Kuklaks, which is poached salmon, and, of course, pickled herring. Which 
brings us to the problem that restaurant Akershus had right from the get-go with Disney World visitors. So after a long, hot day of walking around World Showcase and Future World, nothing says dig on in like a buffet that features many different times of cold pickled fish. It's true. It was. It's my first memory of uh, of restaurant Acres Juice is the, uh, is the, the herring, which I tried, mm-hmm. right? And this was about... Uh, 20 years before I actually went to Norway. So this is this is back in the day for me. But here's the thing. As long as the Norwegian government was paying for the annual upkeep and staffing of their country's World Showcase Pavilion, Rustin Akershus had to, was forced to continue to serve authentic Norwegian fare, uh, which meant each day at lunch and dinner, this table service restaurant was lucky if it was at one-third capacity. Really? It was that bad? Oh, God, yeah. Oof, okay. This restaurant has seating for 284 people. If you work the math there, the fact that the, how much money Disney was leaving on the table, because so many people would walk up to the restaurant, look at the menu, and go, eh, where is Mexico again? Yes. <laughs> All of this changes in, in 2002 when the Norwegian government decides that it no longer wants to underwrite the cost of this World Showcase Pavilion, which now means that Disney Parks and Resorts is no longer beholden to what the sponsor wants them to do. Uh, how many people recall that Howie's Angels debacle back in the spring of 2002? Uh, I do because it's sort of famous just saying it that way. But uh, but why don't you give, give folks a background? It's this group of seemingly well-meaning Disney fans, I mean, who would get up early every morning, call the, the resort reservation line, and then basically grab up all of the reservations to the Princess Breakfast, which was being held up in Cinderella Castle at the Magic Kingdom. It's Cinderella's royal table. What Cowie's Angels would then do is then distribute these princess breakfast reservations that they'd managed to to waggle to other Disney fans online, the people that they deemed worthy, which the problem was that it set all of those Disney fans who were calling the reservation line at the same time that Cowie's Angels were, and only to find out that, I'm sorry, we're already booked solid for that date. So they began to complain directly to Disney, which is why the Walt Disney World Resort announced on May 16th that starting on June 9th, 2002, if you wanted to reserve a seat at the Princess Breakfast being served at Cinderella's Royal Table, a guest would first have to put down a credit card deposit. I I want to say it was $10 for adults and $5 for kids. And that effectively shut down what, what Howie's Angels was doing. But... The folks that, you know, who handled dining reservations at Walt Disney World sort of took the 30,000 foot view here. And it's like, look, clearly we're in a situation where demand is exceeding supply, at least when it comes to Princess Breakfast at Walt Disney World. And yet we have the, the, the restaurant Akershus over at Epcot, which is even open for breakfast and is only doing a third of the business it should when it comes to lunch and dinner. It's like, why don't we try launching a second Disney Princess Breakfast experience over there and see what happens? That did set up some operational issues. I mean, face it, in a situation where World Showcase doesn't open until 11 a.m. and you're offering a princess breakfast that starts at like 8 o'clock in the morning, that means you, you know, you have to have your ticket people up front understand that the guests with the reservations are going to come in, come in and they need priority to get in. And likewise, your security person is going to have to be there at the rope that's separating folks from you know, being able to get to World Showcase. And it's like, okay, you got your reservation. Okay, let me lift the rope here and you go through and all that. But again, it's like, okay, you know, we're willing to do that if this finally gets a crowd 
into uh, Rissen and Ragerhausen. Oh, Lynn. <laughs> they first announced this thing on, on July 16, 2002, that the beginning on July 28th, they'd start serving this princess breakfast. It was only supposed to be a test, was only supposed to run through October 26th. Uh, of that year, and it got so much demand that by August 8th, they pushed out the Prince's Breakfast all the way to December 31st, 2002. People were like, oh, I have to do this, and oh my God, this is so great. Well, let me correct myself here. It's not uh, capacity for 284 guests, it's 264 guests. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, interesting thing is uh, Cinderella's Royal Table, on the other hand, up in the, the Magic Kingdom, there's only seating for 184 this really became the relief valve. In fact, that's the thing. When people would call and try to get Cinderella's World Table, they go, I'm sorry that's booked for that day, but are you aware that we're offering a similar experience over at Epcot? So, no, absolutely. God, the price point, Len. Back then, it was $15.99 for adults and $8.99 for children 3 to 11. <laughs> Those were the days. Those, Those were, were the, the days. days. They did so much business with folks coming to Epcot for this princess breakfast experience that by April of 2005, the folks who were running restaurant Akarhus were just sort of, look, why are we stopping? So that's when they switched over to princess breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And in fact, this was so hugely popular that later in 2002, that's when over at the Grand Floridian, uh, the 1900 Park Frere restaurant, which would, was already doing that Mary Poppins themed breakfast, yep. they started doing what they originally called Cinderella's Gala Feast. But I think starting in 2008, the name of that changed to uh, Cinderella's Happily Ever After Dinner. I've been trying to track down when, because of this demand, Crystal Palace then switched over to the Winnie the Pooh dining experience. We'll have to circle back on that story at another point. But yeah, character dining just basically kind of exploded. And again, largely because of what happened with Howie's Angels. So folks at Norway thought things were crazy. Ruth Rester and Agarhus. But in 2013, when Anna and Elsa came on the scene, that they went from crazy to crazy. Crazy, you could see from space, but we'll talk about that. And <laughs> we went, we went from crazy, to crazy. You could see from space. <laughs> it's true. Those lines were. I think that was the first time I'd ever seen a a three hundred minute line <sighs> for an attraction on a day that wasn't New Year's Eve. Like, I mean, we got, got kind of all expect those sorts of waits. Uh, at, uh, over Christmas, but that was the one where it was like day after day after day after day just to see those. Just those characters. That was really surprising. In the fall of 2013, right across the way from Restaurant Akershus, they had the initial Anna and Elsa meet and greet, which only lasted like a week to 10 days, Len, because then right. they went over to the studio. Uh, the studios are Magic Kingdom. We'll really have to do a full show about this because there was this fascinating bit of turf war between Disney Hollywood oh. Studios and Epcot when it came to Anna and Elsa. You know, because, again, the, the, always the argument was like, look, when a new animated character debuts, traditionally, it goes over to the studio because this is the, you know, the place where we celebrate film and television. So if they're new, they start here. And then after you know the, the Blu-ray DVD is out, then we discuss where else they go, where they go to live. Yeah. 
in the uh, in the in the parks were having none of that. It was basically a turf war, right? Oh, totally. But but again, the, the, we'll save that for another show. But again, I just if anybody remembers what the initial Anna and Elsa uh, meet and greet was like across from restaurant Akershus, because it again, I think that was the the moment where for a lot of people when they saw the somewhat crazed response to the sisters. And it's like, oh, mm-hmm. this is going to be big. And this we've got to remember, this is October. This is weeks before the movie opens in theaters. So, right. Yeah, it was, I, I remember it uh, well. It was, we were all trying to figure out what was going on with that. Uh, with that. Anyway, good review, Jim. Yeah, I tried. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.BandCamp.com where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes. Some of those upcoming exclusives will tell you about a secret 1972 memo that Jim found detailing the rides Disney was planning to build in Orlando. And I'm telling you folks, I just saw the list this week and I've never heard of some of these proposed rides. So I'm really excited to hear what Jim uh, has found. On next week's regular show, the history of Mr. Toad's wild ride. You can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me, Len, at touringplans.com. Were produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who's shaving the wool coats of his Dorset sheep herd into poodle cuts for this year's livestock competition at the Ozaki County Fair, July 29th to August 2nd in beautiful downtown Cedarburg, Wisconsin. Admission is free. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.